Thank you, uh, David, for sharing the words um, or the meaning of the, the words of those songs that we just sang. I've decided to follow Jesus in that uh, historic story. And um, uh, we can sense in that man's heart and through the words that he knew the true life uh, was not found in this world, but there was something further beyond that. And we certainly need to have an eternal perspective, particularly on the sufferings that we experience in this life. Um, only if we have our eyes focused uh, on the things around us, we are certainly going to stumble and certainly going to succumb to the, the temptations around us and, and, and the fear of persecution around us as well. But with our eyes focused on Christ and, and the joy of eternal life and bliss and the glory of the new heavens and new earth, um, our light and momentary troubles... Uh, we can deal with by God's grace. Well, let's, um, as you've probably turned already to Mark chapter 5, let me uh, just uh, begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we, um, we come before you uh, humbly, acknowledging that we only are here by your grace. <coughs> Father, in and of ourselves, we are sinners, we, are, we were hardened uh, rebels against you. And yet by your mercy you have wrought a a miracle in our hearts, bringing life where there was death, enabling our our eyes to be open to see Christ and the good news of who he is and what he has done for us. Father, help us uh, in all things uh, to trust in him and in his word. And as we come before your word now, Father, uh, help us to continue to be humble and may your spirit continue to illuminate your word to our hearts and minds and to apply it into our lives today. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, last time we were here uh, in Mark 5, uh, we were working our way through the events that immediately followed uh, Jesus' teaching of the crowds from the shore of Lake Galilee. And all that teaching is found in Mark chapter 4, teaching that was carried out uh, predominantly in parables, uh, which was a means of sorting out genuine believers from non-believers. For those in whom the Spirit of God had not yet worked, the parables remained obscure and were a stumbling block. For those in whom the Spirit of God had worked regeneration, the parables were a means of, of Uh, being matured in the faith as it caused the believers to think more deeply uh, about the kingdom of God, about his saving and sovereign reign. After Jesus left the crowd that evening, uh, there begins a series of three demonstrations of of the divine power of the Son of God. Uh, At the end of chapter 4, Jesus calms the raging storm and revealed himself to be the master of the sea. As the second person of the Trinity, he, through whom all things were made, showed his sovereign authority over the natural realm. Then at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, when Jesus and the disciples arrive on the other side of the lake the following morning, Jesus is met by two demon-possessed men. Uh, Mark only records that there was one man because uh, he alone spoke to Jesus. But when Jesus cast out the legion of demons. Uh, He revealed himself to be master of the supernatural. 
And here we see that there is no power greater than the triune God. Well now, as Jesus arrives back to the western side of the lake, later that same day, we read in the second half of Mark chapter 5 about two further miraculous displays of power. So let me read our text for today. Mark chapter one, Mark chapter five, verses twenty-one to forty-three. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse." She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. When this passage, Jesus reveals himself as the master of the suffering. These two incidents, which are intimately tied together, show Jesus' power to heal, but moreover, his power to create life from death. (coughs) Ultimately, Jesus' power over life and death is seen in his own victory over the cross at the end of his ministry. And this also shows us the confidence that we can have that by placing our faith in Him as Lord and Saviour, we partake in His victory over sin and death. 
And this is critically important for everyone to know because every single person born, sorry, is born into this world as a member of Adam's race and so born with a sinful nature and the wages of sin being death. No matter what humanity tries to do, we cannot save ourselves from this. We need a saviour. We await a more glorious resurrection at his second coming, but his power displayed in the events of Mark chapter 5 shows us a foretaste of what is to come for those who believe upon him. It is not simply Jesus' power on display either, but the way he exercises his power through his compassion and his care. We see his willingness and his desire to respond generously to those who humble themselves before him. This passage breaks into three sections. And the first, in verses 21 and 24, it highlights Jesus' readiness to respond to those who understand their need for him. And so our first point then is the appeal of humility. Verse 21 sees Jesus returning to Galilee from his trip to the Decapolis the previous evening. That morning he had arrived on the eastern shore and then he cast out the demons and then had been asked by the frightened locals to leave the area and so he did. But he arrived back in Galilee to find the great crowd regathering from the previous day. And just remember then that from Mark chapter 3, verse 20, all the way through to the end of Mark chapter 5, we have two consecutive days. So a lot has certainly happened in this short amount of time. And why, you may ask, is that important to remember? Well, amid this huge gathering, verse 22 tells us, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. What what started the events off the previous morning? Matthew's account specifically tells us that Jesus healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. That's Matthew 12, verse 22. And that leads the Jewish leaders, the, the scribes and Pharisees, to attack Jesus' integrity, claiming he did his work by the power of the devil himself. Now, it would be logical to assume that this was taking place in Capernaum, since in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we're told that Jesus had come home, and home for Jesus was Capernaum. We've already read back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in what was most probably the Capernaum synagogue, that the Pharisees saw this display and then went straight about the business of trying to destroy Jesus. So this is the atmosphere in the region at that moment. This is the leadership's position on Jesus. He must be taken out. And so here comes Jairus, publicly falling in humility before Jesus. Now talk about going against the flow. Now the text doesn't say Jairus was a a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the synagogue. If he was a Pharisee, Mark surely would have told us, but he certainly had high standing as leader of the Jewish community in Capernaum. Synagogue rulers numbered between three and seven men, and they were responsible for the local religious life of the community. 
pious men, well respected, as they sought to lead the people in adherence to the laws of God. So, he wasn't at the level of the Pharisees' power and influence, but he was well known in his own right. And to come to Jesus, when the hierarchy above uh, had determined that the party line was against Jesus, is utterly extraordinary. Jairus may not have been privy to all the details of the Pharisees' plans against Jesus, but someone in his position would have known exactly what was going on. Again, if we logically assume that he was a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, then he would have known or was perhaps even witness uh, to Jesus' healing of the man with the withered hand and then witness to the Pharisees' reaction. And of course, Jesus' actions and the Pharisees' reactions were not limited to the synagogue uh, because Jesus had been doing many, many miraculous displays of healing in and around Capernaum and wider Galilee. So, Jairus would have known the risk to himself and his family by approaching Jesus in the manner that he did. But he did it anyway. The desire to please men and live at peace, free from persecution, has led many a man straight into hell. Fear of man has been a a greater threat for them than fear of the holy creator of the universe. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not let the pressures of this life keep you away from the truth and the real life found only in Jesus Christ. For as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jairus weighed his fear of earthly persecution with the person and work of Jesus Christ. He knew that whatever was being claimed against Jesus by the Pharisees, that Jesus was indeed the real deal. And a moment of deep need causes him to let the false pretenses go by the wayside, whatever that might cost him. He falls at Jesus' feet. And then verse 23 says, And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. It shows that he has no doubt whatsoever about Jesus' ability to heal. So that is a statement of consequence. He wants Jesus to lay his hands on his daughter because he knows this will result in her being made well. In the providence of God, this, the sickness of this little girl was being used to bring Jairus to the end of himself and to Jesus. When faced with the stark reality that he might actually lose his daughter, Jairus was freed from any thoughts in his mind that were allowing him to look upon Jesus with the same mindset of the Pharisees. Sometimes sickness drives people further away from God. Sometimes it causes them to see the lack of their own ability and their need for divine aid. No doubt some of you may have experienced this in your own life. No doubt many of you have seen both of these things in the lives of your family and friends. What makes the difference though? What makes one come to Jesus and 
keeps the other away. Well, what makes a person come to Jesus is the grace of God and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Only that. Because if it's not this, then we logically have to claim that it was something that we possessed in ourselves that caused us to turn to Christ. To Christ, Something that, that we had, but others didn't. But only God can turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And this is what we witness in Jairus that day. Now, there's one important textual issue we have to address here. It's been pointed out by critics of the Bible that there is a glaring contradiction in this passage. In Mark's account of this event, Jairus approaches Jesus and says, My little daughter is at the point of death. But in Matthew's account, Jairus says, My daughter has just died. So a casual glance might suggest this is a game changer. Is she dead or isn't she? That's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? There are at least two solutions to this matter which show once again we have every reason to trust the integrity of Scripture. In the first solution, it's suggested that Matthew's Gospel is simply a legitimate use of the technique of compression. Matthew's account is only seven verses long compared to Mark's account, which is 23 verses. Just on the surface of that, you can see there's a different purpose behind this. Clearly, Matthew's aim was to simply record the basics of the incident. This is especially seen in the fact that he doesn't record that people from Jairus' house came to him and told him that his daughter had died. So, that's the first solution. In the second solution, it's suggested that the phrases in Matthew and Mark are very similar in the original language. So much so that Matthew's phrase could easily be understood as Jairus expressing his thought that by this time his daughter had most surely died. And I think that when we combine what is said in both Gospels, we can reach a simple harmony that understands Jairus still said both things to Jesus. Mark records Jesus' first statement, My little daughter is at the point of death. While Matthew records the second statement, My daughter has just died. And so Jairus is essentially saying, My little daughter is at the point of death, and by now she is most probably dead. Since Matthew is giving a succinct account, he only gives the second statement of Jairus, whereas Mark, looking to give a fuller account, leaves out Jairus' second statement because the affirmation of the daughter's death will be given when the people from Jairus' house come at a later point. With either of these two solutions, we have more than adequate grounds for trusting in the infallible and inerrant word of God. Well, how does Jesus respond to this request? He went with him. Here we see Jesus' willingness to respond to those who humble themselves before him. Jairus sets a wonderful example for us in how we are to approach the Lord in humility. We need to recognize our complete dependence upon him. We should mirror Jairus' humility before God and indeed before his word as well. And in our Lord's response, he shows how willing he is to listen to the requests of those who come before him in humility. He's 
willing to come to us in our suffering and bring relief. Not just powerful to do so, but willing. The second part of verse 24 tells us, however, that it wasn't just Jesus who went with Jairus, but the whole crowd. Some went, no doubt, because they had needs of their own. But many were simply excited to see what was going to happen. Excited that uh, they were probably going to witness yet another miracle. Once again, external miracles testified to the truth of the gospel, but unless there is an initial internal miracle wrought in a sinner's heart by the Spirit of God, then they're not going to come to true saving faith. They're just going to be along for the theatrics. But when commitment to the Lord is tested, it's like the seed uh, grown in the rocky soil that has no root and withers when the heat of the day comes. Yet the mention of this great crowd sets us up for what happens next. For out of this throng of people, the attention becomes focused upon one woman. And it's her act of hope that makes point two. So we've seen the appeal of humility, now we see the act of hope. Like what we see in John's Gospel, when in chapter 3 we read about Nicodemus approaching Jesus, and then in chapter 4 we read about the Samaritan woman at the well. In this instance recorded in Mark's Gospel, there there also happens to be a juxtaposition of, of social standing. And what we see is Jesus' willingness to associate with all people no matter their social standing. However, there's no issue of morality with the woman in Mark 5, as there was in John 4. That woman had been married five times, and the man she was with was not her husband. She was living in sexual immorality, whereas this woman in Mark 5 was suffering a physical ailment. So look at the comparison between the two people in Mark 5. One man... One woman, one man serving as an eminent and respectable religious leader. One woman unable to partake in the religious life of the community due to her ceremonial uncleanness. Jairus approaches Jesus in humility, but in full public view. Whereas this woman approaches Jesus while privately hidden within the crowd. But even though the woman approaches Jesus concealed in the crowd, nevertheless, it is an act of hope. Biblical hope. Not merely desiring for healing to occur but with assurance that she will receive her healing and relief from her suffering. That's the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation. So Mark begins with a description of the woman's condition. Verse 25 And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood For 12 years. 12 years. That is a long, long time. And not only would she have had the physical discomfort of her condition to endure, but the emotional distress of being rendered ceremonially unclean for such a long time. Leviticus 15, we are told that her condition would have prevented her from being able to participate in the religious life of the community. Now, in light of the events that day, what's interesting about this difficult situation is that Jairus was one of the men tasked with looking after the religious life of the community and ensuring who was and who was not to be involved in public worship. 
Now, this woman had sought help, but it was all to no avail. Verse 26 said that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So like the demoniac that morning on the other side of the lake, human assistance was a hindrance rather than a help. And just as with the demoniac, when Mark had made clear that no one was able to bind him, here, no one, no one at all was able to heal this woman. And it again serves to heighten the power of Jesus. Well, like everyone in the region, this woman knew that about Jesus, knew that he could heal her. And that's what we see when Mark describes her confidence verses 27 and 28. So just like Jairus, this woman had no doubts, no no issue as to whether Jesus had the ability to heal or not. If I touch him, I will be made well. It's not a longing, it's just assurance. This is what's going to happen. Now it wasn't, however, that she had some weird belief that Jesus' garments were, were magical, that the power was in the clothes. But it was a genuine trust in his person and power. And her confidence is validated when we read in verse 29 about her cure. This is, this is not a gradual healing. It was immediate. She felt straight away within her body that she was healed. It's not describing either some sort of placebo effect. But she simply thought that uh, she was healed. But it's a genuine healing. And she'd been suffering for so long. She knew this discomfort personally and persistently. And in an instant, she experienced cleansing and renewal. And what happens next is very important because Jesus draws her out to make a public confession of faith. Verse 30 begins, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. That's how the verse starts. Now, we shouldn't take away from this that somehow people could touch Jesus and his power would automatically flow without any of his say-so. Remember that when the woman touched his clothes, he was closely surrounded by many others pressing in around him. But none of these people suddenly started to to shout for joy uh, that they had received their healing. That didn't happen. Now, Jesus is sovereignly in control of how his power is expressed. And when that power goes out from him, Mark says Jesus immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, was Jesus unaware of who had touched him? In answering that, let me say, we need to recognize that Jesus is truly human and truly God. But he always exercised his divine powers in accord with his Father's will. His human nature was not omniscient, and so when he expressed knowledge of of people or events, it was through his divine nature in accord with the Father's will. Later in his ministry, he spoke of not knowing the time of his second coming. But that was not part of the Father's will for the Son to know that at that moment. It's not a lack of Christ's divinity, but it was an exercise of Christ's humble submission to the Father in the Incarnation. But what about here in Mark 5? 
Was Jesus unaware of who had touched him? While Mark doesn't spell out for us Jesus' internal thoughts here, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And for two reasons. First, in verse 31, the disciples show their incredulity that Jesus would think he even knew that someone specifically had touched him. Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? So, the emphasis in the text is upon Jesus' knowledge, not his lack of knowledge. Second, and more significantly, if, as we've stated a moment ago, that Jesus is in sovereign control of how his power is expressed, it would seem far more consistent to acknowledge that when the woman touched Jesus... He was not simply aware that power went out from him, but that he, he knew the woman who touched him. He knew the woman's physical condition. He knew the motivation and trust that was in her heart to do such a thing. And he gladly and compassionately healed her in that very instance. But why then would he ask who had touched him and start looking around to see who had done it? Because he was drawing the woman out. He was drawing her out that her healing might be made public, that she might be restored to fellowship in the community. But more importantly, he was drawing her out to give a, uh, for her to give a, a verbal testimony of her faith that he might then bestow upon her the assurance that not only had her faith in him led to physical healing, but also, as we'll see, to spiritual forgiveness. So we read in verse 33 that she too, like Jairus, falls down before him and tells, tells him the whole account before the crowd. And just like the disciples in the boat were filled with great fear when they witnessed Jesus' divine power, so this woman expresses fear, having just experienced the miraculous healing for herself. Verse 34 then tells us of the comfort she received from the words of Jesus. Jesus reassures her by tenderly calling her daughter. He affirms that her hope was not misplaced. She had confidence that if she touched Jesus' garment, that she would be made well. And Jesus affirms that this is exactly what has taken place. But it's more than physical healing that the woman received. It was the comfort of spiritual healing. Interestingly, the word translated in verse 29 that described her as being healed of her disease is the usual word for physical healing. However, the word translated by the phrase made well, verse 44, means saved or delivered. That's the the word that's used to refer to salvation from sins. Back in verse 28, the same root word for salvation is used when Mark shares the woman's thoughts about being made well. And what seems to be is that when she touched Jesus' garment, She was healed physically, but this act of hope wrought her greater desire for spiritual cleansing, which Jesus affirmed to her when she came forward. (coughs) His command for her to go in peace reflects the peace that also occurs at the end of all three accounts in this section. The peace after the storm, peace after the exorcism, and now the peace of this healed woman. This peace is true peace. Through faith in Jesus, she was no longer at enmity with God. She was delivered from his wrath against her 
and reconciled to him. She was truly made a daughter of God. And Jesus' last words to her, he says, and be healed of your disease. Now, this doesn't mean that there's more healing to take place because that was completed right there and then. It was simply an encouragement and assurance that the disease had been dealt with. Her sins had been dealt with and she could get on with living her life. Here we see the power of Jesus but also his compassion. And moreover, the restoration and life that comes through faith in him and abundant life at that. So we've seen the appeal of humility, the act of hope, and finally we see the authority of heaven. Jesus truly is the master of the suffering because there is no greater suffering than death. Yet even here, Jesus has the power to overcome. Working our way through Mark's gospel to this point, we've seen countless, countless healing miracles performed by our Lord in and around Capernaum. But what we see in the words of the people who came to tell Jairus that all hope was gone is that while restoring people from disease and deformity is truly amazing, bringing someone back from the dead is just a bridge too far. In their minds, once life has left a person, there's nothing more that can be done. And that's true, humanly speaking, isn't it? And you can understand their sentiments exactly. But if the wages of sin is death, we need a saviour that has far more power than, than to be only able to heal what is in the process of dying. We need someone who has power over death itself. Interestingly, Jesus had already exhibited this power in southern Galilee when he brought a widow's son back from the dead in the town of Nain. Now that's recorded for us in Luke 7 verses 11 to 17. That miracle was done at the town gate and news had spread. But maybe it hadn't reached the ears of these people further north. Or maybe it had and they just considered it ridiculous in the sight of the awesome finality of death. Either way, Jesus calls Jairus to have continued faith. Fear is juxtaposed with faith. The delay had led to the daughter's death, but this was not a failure. Later in his ministry, Jesus would also delay in coming to heal Lazarus. But that was for the glory of God and the greater belief of his disciples. And so here for Jairus and his family, for the disciples and for us as we read it today. Here is God's sovereignty at work. We may sometimes be tempted to think that God is not able to deal with every matter that crops up. We start worrying about it. Uh, there, there may be too many balls in the air for him to kind of uh, to sort out. But nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control and righteous purposes. Nothing. So think about it. Is Jesus faced with a difficult choice between heading straight to heal Jairus' daughter or stopping to show mercy to this woman? No. Jesus shows that nothing is beyond his reach. So even though the daughter has died, he has the power of life and death. He can take his time if he wants. We should look at this moment here in Mark 5 as an extraordinarily great encouragement. 
While Jesus leaves the crowd behind at this point, taking on Jairus and Peter, James and John. These men make up the inner circle of the twelve. And so here's one of several moments in Jesus' ministry uh, where he specifically takes only these three <coughs> along with him to witness more of who he is. Now, given Jairus' prominence in the town, it's not surprising that many other people have gathered to his house. No doubt this included many family members and friends. However, it would surely have included professional mourners, people who got paid as a job to come and set the tone for grieving when a death occurred. Unlike Western funerals, where the tone is somber and reflective, the mourning process in ancient Jerusalem was loud and expressive. It also usually included the hiring of musicians as well. And so we can easily recognise where there was why there was such a commotion when Jesus arrived at Jairus' house. Jesus cuts through it all straight away, saying, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleep. Now, we understand that in Scripture, sleep is used as a, a euphemism for death, but here Jesus is speaking of the temporary nature of the girl's condition. In a moment, he's going to raise her back to life. So it will be as if she had simply been asleep. But the people take Jesus' words literally. In verse 30, it says they laughed at him. They know what death looks like. They've seen the body of this young girl. There's no mistaking what has happened. And so they mock Jesus for making such a claim. And incidentally, that simple switch between weeping and laughing testifies to the fact that many within this gathering were surely paid mourners. I mean, a grieving family member is not going to laugh at someone who says their little girl is simply sleeping rather than dead. They're not going to laugh. They're going to get angry and upset. But that's not what happened. So the scornful unbelief of these mourners leads to their exclusion from witnessing further testimony to, to Jesus' person and power. Because Jesus responds to them by putting them out of the child's room and entering himself with the girl's parents and the three apostles. And here is such a beautiful scene. Gently, he stooped down to where the girl lay and said, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha Kumi is an Aramaic phrase. We have to remember that the New Testament was written in Greek uh, whilst Jesus generally spoke in Aramaic. And so even here, this, this little aspect reminds us of the integrity of Scripture when we, we come across slight variations between the Gospel writers when they're recording the same events. They're translating Aramaic into Greek. Now, there was nothing spectacular in how Jesus went about this healing. Just a gentle touch and a tender word. But what followed was truly incredible. The Lord's power is seen in the immediate response of the girl. Uh, there was no recovery time. As she got up straight away as if she'd just woken up from a nap. And if there is any doubt about her sudden activity, then the response of those gathered in the room with Jesus gives a clear indication. They too were overcome with amazement. And just note the connection again between these two events recorded in Mark 5. The little girl was 12 years old. That's a significant piece of information. It shows us that the 12 years of joy this family had experienced with their daughter 
is the exact same time that the woman had experienced suffering, pain and exclusion. In an extraordinary display of power that day, Jesus restored the lives of both these daughters of God. Now, as the passage ends, we recognise that in the wonder and amazement at seeing the girl come back to life, Jesus grounds their minds by telling them to organise some food for her and shows his care for her entire welfare. And yet, it also validates that the girl truly has been brought back from the dead. This is no apparition. This is no trick of the mind. She's alive. And she'll soon prove it to them the moment they watch her wolf down a meal. In the command to keep the miracle quiet, Jesus is protecting the family from drawing attention to themselves and making themselves a spectacle. Now, of course, it's a bit hard to hide the fact that someone who was dead is now walking around alive. Uh, Word is going to get out pretty quick. But by not speaking directly to it, number one, it won't draw added heat upon Jairus and his family for his public display of faith in Jesus. Remember what happened when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. The religious leaders not only wanted to kill Jesus, they planned to kill Lazarus again to get rid of the evidence. And then number two, in keeping quiet about the miracle... It's going to give Jesus time to remove himself from the area so that his ministry is not cut short by the Jewish leadership. And then number three, while the miracle served to validate the truth of his message and his identity, he's not interested in people coming to him for the miracles as an end of themselves, but for what the miracles point towards. And that helps us significantly as we think about Jesus' exhibition of power over disease and death, or how Jesus' exhibition of power over disease and death applies to us today. What do we take home from this passage? Well, let's just remember that all those whom Jesus healed eventually grew older and eventually died. They didn't stay well. Even this little girl who was brought back from the dead also died. Now, we might think of it better as a a resuscitation rather than a resurrection. Not because she was resuscitated in a comparable way to how someone might be showing no signs of life but can be brought back to life with emergency medical assistance. No, what Jesus did was not medical but miraculous. By allowing himself to be delayed and getting to her house, he made sure there was no mistaking what he did for anything other than a miracle. But when I say resuscitation, I mean that this little girl was brought back to life in her earthly body. She didn't receive a glorious, a glorified resurrection body like Christ did after his resurrection. What happened to this girl was the same as for the widow's son and name, same for Lazarus, same for the saints that we read about in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, who were raised back to life and started walking around Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. Every one of these people eventually succumbed to death once more. As sinners, every person born into this world needs a greater deliverance than even these miracles, bringing us back to life as we know it now. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The writer of Hebrews declares in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, 
and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, only through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ can a person escape the eternal punishment that awaits sinners. Only by Christ's life, death and resurrection can sinners be forgiven and declared righteous before Holy God and reconciled into his family, no longer at enmity, no longer under his wrath, but standing in his grace and experiencing his love. When Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, these miracles served as testimony to who he is and the message he was preaching. This is the one who has the power over death. And this passage pushes us to look beyond mere physical healing now and to see the one who brings spiritual cleansing and forgiveness, who gives eternal life, life that will mean we one day receive glorious resurrected bodies and when we'll be brought into the new heavens and new earth. Whereas Revelation 21.4 pronounces, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, does God grant the gift of healing and miracles to people today? No. These gifts were signs that validated the messenger and the message. But now that we have the sufficient word of God, there's no need for these gifts any longer. But does God heal today? Absolutely. In the face of sickness and sadness, any believer can approach God in prayer for recovery and he will hear it and he will act according to his good and perfect will, whether the answer we receive is a yes or a no or a maybe. And not yet. And we should also say that God does this usually in conjunction with the application of medical services as well. These truly are blessings from God. Now, should we label it a miracle if God brings about this healing? This healing today? No, we shouldn't. What Jesus did, and the apostles and a handful of those associated with the apostles did, these were true miracles. There was no possible way of attributing the work to another reason other than the direct intervening power of God. But when we see people healed in answer to prayer today, even if it seems to be something totally unexplainable, it's not a miracle, but rather it is the providential working of God. His constant care, provision, and guiding of all things. Now, salvation remains a miracle. A heart cannot turn to God without God's gracious uh, power. But in all other things, God works by his providential care. If If a cancerous tumor somehow shrinks, we don't know why, and that person goes into remission, it's an answer to prayer, and we should praise God for it. But it's not a miracle. We should thank God for being at work providentially in his creation. But it's not a miracle. What's often called a miracle today can be viewed by by lots of people in lots of different ways. I mean, just this week there was a massive pile-up on the Monash Freeway and one emergency responder described it as an absolute miracle that no one was killed. Earlier this year, after winning what was thought to be an unwinnable election, the Prime Minister spoke of his belief in miracles. 
But both aspects are more accurately placed under the category of God's providence. You see, in the Bible, when people witnessed a miracle, they might deny the source, but they don't deny the substance. The scribes and the Pharisees knew Jesus was performing mighty works, but they denied the Spirit of God, and they attributed the source instead to Satan. So the passage we've read today is not descriptive. Sorry, the passage today is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells us of what happened then, not what's going to happen every time after. However, it does point us to our desperate need for Christ. He alone has power over death. He displayed that through his ministry. He displayed that even more completely when he rose from the dead himself, for death could not hold him down. Jesus Christ truly is the master of the suffering. Through faith in him and him alone, will we be restored to God? Will we have eternal life? Will we one day experience the resurrection of our own bodies and the joy of heavenly fellowship forever? What we see in the passage today is the power of the Saviour, but also his tenderness and his compassion and his willingness to respond to those who humble themselves, to respond to those whose hope is in him. He is powerful and he is gentle. So come to him. Come to the Saviour. Come to the one who has met your greatest need through the blood-stained cross and the empty tomb. Because in him alone is life eternal. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that is in this passage. Such a rich and deep passage. Father, we thank you for the power of Christ displayed through this. Father, we thank you for his compassion as well. Father, we thank you that he is the one who has power over death and disease. The one who will meet us in our deepest suffering. And our most important suffering is what we experience through our sin and our rebellion against you. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who exhibited his power over death through these miraculous works, raising this little girl to life. But Father, we thank you that through the cross, through the empty tomb, he displayed magnificently his true power over death. Death could not hold him down. And so through coming to faith in him, we partake not only in his death for our sin, but his resurrection life too. And we await the glory of our resurrected bodies where there will be no more death, but only joy. Father, help us to, as we leave from here today to be instilled with this hope, this joy, this knowledge of Christ our Saviour. And may we be spurred on to teach others about the life, true life, that is only found in Christ Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.